through bite-sized epic reworks of Edward Grieg, George Friedrich Handel, Richard Wagner, and many more, the Ostrogothic Fantasy Orchestra has released a new album, Watch the Vatican, which is available now. Watch the Vatican includes 13 drummed-up tracks and will introduce the world of classical music to both young and old. Music is a great way to awaken sleeping souls and raise anyone's vibration to the next level. So head over to gothokestra.com to listen now. If you like what you hear, consider purchasing a digital copy of the album on Bandcamp. That's gothokestra.com. G-O-T-H-O-C-H-E-S-T-R-A dot com. And keep in mind, the monogram of the nine is with us all the way. Back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today, my guest is once again Corey Hughes. First, I have a couple of announcements. I am hoping to start traveling for the docu the, for the docu series within the next couple of months. I'm going to start through Texas and down to South Louisiana, where I'll be visiting family and doing a little filming. I eventually want to be able to travel across the United States and visit with as many of you as possible. Now, we are still completely self-funded, and we're asking for your help. If you would like to help with a donation, anything is greatly appreciated. And you can go to supportfkn.com, which is also right in the description. Corey, tell them a little bit about what they get if they donate $5 or more at supportfkn.com. Sure. The... the the biggest thing that you get, if you give a $5 donation, you get access to a whole bunch of uh, JFK-related stuff that I've been posting, stuff about my book, but you also get access to the JFK supporter chat um, where we can interact and I can answer any questions about Kennedy. And I got, I've got only got about 10 or 15 people in there, and there's about, only about five or six guys who actually post stuff, but we have a great time in there. It's, uh, it's really awesome, and it's really become a, a good repository of all kinds of information on all kinds of different subjects. So, yeah, for even just a $5 donation, you get access to that, and uh, you'll get a heads up and probably early access to my book when it's done and all that stuff. So it's definitely worth the money. Definitely. And like I said, anything is greatly appreciated. That's supportfkn.com. Also, check out our website, forbiddenknowledge.news. This is also the home of the Forbidden Knowledge Network. You'll find some of your favorite podcasts from our community, like Day Zero, Understanding Propaganda, Raised by Giants, and plenty more. Forbidden Knowledge News is always available on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, and all podcast platforms. Check out Rockfin. This is where you get the premium content. You also get all the premium content from every creator on Rockfin for only $10 a month. 
You can also create a free account, get access to everyone's free content, including all of our regular shows, just by going to rockfin.com slash FKN plus. That's R-O-K-F-I-N dot com slash FKN plus or click the link in the description. Today, I want to welcome back to the show Corey Hughes. He is a historian, researcher, host of Understanding Propaganda, co-host of Day Zero, and soon-to-be author. Corey, welcome back. How you doing? Excellent. Thank you. Yes, man. This is going to be great. Uh, first, I want, to, I want the audience to feel free to leave any questions or comments for Corey along the way. We'll try and get to those as soon as possible. And as usual, here's Corey is back to give us some updates on his progress with the book and some uh, lesser known facts that we need to understand about this complete picture because it's a giant puzzle that we're trying to put together. How is the book going so far? It's going actually phenomenally well. Uh, I have eight chapters finished and it's going to be 12 or 13 chapters. Uh, I basically have finished the entire second half of the book Almost. I have one chapter left to finish the second half. So I have the assassination and then that's finished. And then after that, I have like the aftermath, all the crazy stuff that went on in Daily Plaza and uh, a chapter called Oswald's Escape. Uh, the legend of how Oswald escaped from an assassination on public transport using a bus and then a cab. Right. Like, give me a fucking break. It's the dumbest story ever. And so that'll be finished in the next week or so. And then that'll be the entire second half of the book done. I also have chapters finished on, well, I am about halfway done on my chapter on the Israelis. And then I already have the Oswald chapter done. I have my David Ferry chapter almost done. My Mercenaries chapter almost done. So yeah, I'm like close to, I'd say three quarters finished. And so yeah, um, I'm hoping to wrap it up in the next month. I was hoping to get it done by September, but it'll probably be October. But it is... uh, it's good. It's really good. I'm surprised because I was wondering if I was going to be able to pull off explaining what I know in my head, right? It's because it's extremely complicated and there's a lot of jumping around and there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle that are dependent on other pieces of the puzzle, right? So uh, I thought there'd be a lot of jumping around in the book, but it's there's not. I got it flowing very nicely. I'm really kind of excited about it. It's looking like it's going to be over 500 pages when it's done. Um, and then. Once that's done, I already have enough material that I've been researching to start another book right away. Um, or I could go the route of like Michael Collins Piper and put out a, a, like a second edition or a third edition where I just keep increasing, you know, I just keep growing the book itself. Uh, but there's a lot of different ways that I can handle it. But what's going to happen when a book goes, uh, we're going to do a pre-sale. As soon as it's ready to go, we're going to do a pre-sale for 20 bucks. And with that, you'll get the book and you'll also get uh, my notes which are keep growing. They're about 750 pages worth of my notes. So you'll be able to like read through the book and then look at my notes and you'll be able to see the actual documents um, or whatever. So yeah, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be great. I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, it's funny because I, I, I often go on YouTube and I look for JFK assassination videos and I watch them and I get so disappointed because you got guys who are still debating shit. That's like 30 years old that I solved, right? It's like, God damn it. How fucking stupid are you people? It's really frustrating. I seriously think that like um, JFK researchers are like, um, they should be a protected class because they're so fucking retarded. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I can't wait to get into this. So today we're going to be discussing more about David Ferry and the Winterland Ice Rink. Is that correct? Yes. 
Yes, yes. It's oh, funny. Uh, I watched. I want to uh, thank any word real quick. Tipped two dollars. Thank you so much, brother. Um, so I watched a video yesterday. A guy did a, a presentation on David Ferry on some other Kennedy podcast, and he didn't even get the name of the ice rink right. He called it the Winter Garden Ice Arena, and I'm like, you fucking people. <laughs> so uh, today we're going to so talk about we, David yeah. Ferry. Where do we start with this one? Okay, so David Ferry is. Jim Garrison, who was the attorney, is the district attorney in New Orleans um, at the time of the assassination. And then in 1967, when he began his investigation into whether or not there was a conspiracy involving Clay Shaw, um, he considered David Ferry to be one of the most important people in American history. Uh, and he was probably right. Uh, David Ferry unquestionably was a longtime CIA. Okay. So before we get started, and I, I want to, I'm going to do, I'm going to share a video clip, just so people can be reminded of who David Ferry is, uh, just in case you've, in case you've seen the JFK movie or haven't seen the JFK movie. Uh, this is a clip that'll just give you a little bit of uh, insight into who he was and his relationship with Jim Garrison. Black, black, just give it to me. Black. Shit, my neck is killing. Me. I got cancer. I That's David cancer. Ferry, Joe Pesci's character. Did you ever work for the CIA? You make it sound like some remote fucking experience in ancient history. Man, you don't leave the agency. Once you and you, they got you for life. Shaw? Shaw? Shaw's an untouchable, highest clearance. Shaw, Oswald, the Cubans, all agency. What about Ruby? Jack was a pimp. He was a bag man for the Dallas mob. He used to run guns to Castro when he was still on our side. Mm. We almost had Castro with us. Then we tried to whack him. Everybody's flipping sides all the time. It's funny games, man. Funny games. What about the mob, Dave? How do they take in this? It's just the agency, too, man. CIA and the mafia working together. Trying to whack out the beard. Mutual interest. They've been doing it for years. It's more of this than you could dream. Well, check out something called uh, Mongoose. Operation Mongoose. Mongoose? Uh, government, Pentagon stuff. Uh, they're in charge. But who the fuck pulls whose chain? Who the fuck knows? Oh, what a heavy web we weave when we practice to deceive. And who killed the president? Oh, man, why don't you fucking stop it? Shit, who did... This is too fucking big for you, you know that? This is... Who did the president? Who killed... Get... Fuck, man! It's, it's a mystery! It's a mystery wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma! The fucking shooters don't even know, don't you get it? Fuck, man! I can't keep talking like this. You're gonna fucking kill me! I'm gonna fucking die! Son of a bitch! I don't know what happened. Fuck! All I wanted in the world was to be a Catholic priest, live in a monastery, pray, serve God. I had one fucking, one, one terrible fucking weakness. They defrocked me. And then I started to lose everything. It's gonna be okay, Dan. You just talk to us on the record. We'll protect you. I guarantee it. I 
they get to you too. They'll destroy you. They're untouchable, man. I'm so fucking exhausted, I can't see straight. All right. So that was David Ferry. Um, Joe Pesci did an amazing job playing the character uh, from people who uh, knew David Ferry. Uh, people have commented that Joe Pesci's performance was pretty spot on. Although that conversation that you just saw never actually happened. But what they did do was they took a ton of information about Ferry and the mob and all this stuff and they smushed it together. JFK is like the ultimate propaganda film because they give you all the good data. And then they push you off in a different direction, right? So there's actually one scene in the JFK movie where Garrison's people are, um, they're in a meeting and they're talking about Kennedy and one of the guys is reading a newspaper. And when you, if you pause the film on the newspaper, one of the top articles in the newspaper that the guy is reading is talking about Israel's nuclear project. Okay, so they never that they you see they they give you all the good information and then they just brush right over it. Right. There are so many Easter eggs in the JFK movie of them, like giving us the finger. It's fucking unbelievable. So but David Ferry, I'm going to go back and watch that again. It's been years and years, but that clip just kind of brought it back and I got to go watch it. It's a great, great movie. Um, The conclusions that are drawn are all bunk. They never really mention the Israelis. Uh, they do actually mention a, a Central Mondial Commercial CMC, which was the company that the Mossad front company that Clay Shaw was associated with. That was basically the money funnelers for the assassination. They even Garrison in that film mentions that movie, mentions that um, that company, which is really unusual. So but uh, just to give you some background on David Ferry and what I'm going to do now is you're all in for a treat because you're going to get a sneak peek of my book. I'm going to read you some of my. Uh, chapter on David Ferry. No shit. And uh, all right. So I'll read you the first couple lines. So the first couple paragraphs, so you can kind of get an idea. David Ferry fired the first shot from the corner of the picket fence. The shot struck Kennedy in the throat. This was observed by a witness sitting across the Stemmons freeway named Ed Hoffman. And I'll play a video showing Ed Hoffman's testimony here shortly. In order to put the pieces together on this statement, one must first understand Ferry's role in the assassination. In order to understand Ferry's role in the assassination, one must really come to grasp David Ferry's history, including who his associates had been throughout his life. One must also come to understand his motivations. Ferry had been a rabid anti-communist, and like many others at the time, he felt that Kennedy himself was at least soft on communism, if not a communist himself. The story we've all been told about Ferry is that he had no involvement in the assassination and that other than a few shady characters he'd surrounded himself with, there is no reason to believe that he was involved in shooting the president. When one really comes to grasp who David Ferry actually was, the official story version of his life becomes laughable. Many people are only familiar with Ferry because of the portrayal of him in the Oliver Stone JFK film. The blockbuster movie was ultimately a finely crafted piece of propaganda. Joe Pesci, whom we all should be familiar with, did a fantastic job of playing the role of Ferry, despite the fact that most of the conversations we saw on screen between him and Jim Garrison were works of fiction. Ferry is initially dragged into the investigation the weekend after JFK was shot. He was ratted out to the FBI by another person featured in Stone's film, Jack Martin. Jack Martin is another one of these CIA spooks with a long and shady history, one that we will have to touch upon another time. For now, all we need to know about Jack Martin is that 
He was at the time an investigator hired by Guy Bannister to work cases for Bannister's private investigation business located at 544 Camp Street. This is the same private investigation office that purportedly Oswald was working out of when he was photographed handing out flyers for the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Whether or not Bannister ever actually performed any private investigations here is suspect as the entire operation screams uh, as a cover for CIA black ops. Uh, why would Jack Martin make that fateful call to the FBI to throw Ferry under the bus? That is a question that still keeps me up at night. If Jack Martin had not made that phone call, who knows if Ferry would ever have been dragged into the investigation to the depths that he was. Jim Garrison would have eventually come across the photo showing Ferry and Oswald together at the Civil Air Patrol, and I'll show that here momentarily, indicating that Ferry would still have come under some level of scrutiny. The real heat on Ferry, in my opinion, stemmed from that phone call by Jack Martin, which indicated that he and a few boys of questionable age went on a road trip from New Orleans to Houston to go ice skating. This trip allegedly occurred on the day the president was shot and happened to take travelers through one of the worst thunderstorms in recent in the recent history of the state of Louisiana. Kind of an odd time to take a trip, wouldn't you say? As we will see later on, the trip to Houston, as described, never actually happened. It was part of an elaborate cover-up designed to give Ferry an alibi, as he was most certainly in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. So, um, that's the first uh, page or so of my Ferry chapter. Um, let me go ahead. I'm going to screen share and show you some pictures of David Ferry. And if anyone has any questions or comments in the audience, feel free to pop those in the chat and we'll get to them. All right. So this is very uh, when he was younger, probably in his uh, 30s. The picture on the right, um, that hat is not a military hat. That is uh, that picture was taken when he was working for Eastern Airlines. So um, Ferry um, had been a. a a CIA pilot going back to 1947, the first year that the CIA was around. And the reason we know this is because there was a small airport in Venice, Florida, that kind of uh, hit the media and was kind of brought into the limelight because of 9-11. A bunch of the 9-11 hijackers allegedly trained at a private airport in Venice, Florida. Well, the leasee of that same airport in 1947 was Clay Shaw. Okay. Clay Shaw had been gathering um, Cubans for an invasion of Cuba under Batista, right? So the previous dictator of Cuba, the CIA was out to get him. And that's why the CIA hooked up with Castro in the first place. Uh, they needed to oust uh, Batista. And so going back all the way to 1947, you have witnesses who saw David Ferry at the airport in Venice, Florida with Clay Shaw going back all the way to 47. And that tells me that he was a CIA pilot from day one. Uh, he wasn't in World War II. Well, see, here's the thing. His military record is all kinds of obfuscated. There's some indication that he did go through like basic training and he was in some sort of army reserve regimen, but um, nobody can really, nobody's dug up his, his military records, but he had to have done some kind of military uh, in order to catch the attention of the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, so, but this is David Ferry when he was younger, you know, kind of a normal, good looking guy, right? But as he got older, um, through various drug use, usually um, whatever they called speed back then, he did a lot of speed, um, mexomethane, or I forget what it's called, but there's a, there were pills, dextromethane or something like that. 
But uh, over time, he kind of got to be kind of a haggard character. And you can see he started losing his hair. Um, many people, this is another one. The one on the left, he's wearing a wig. The one on the right, it's a wig also. And you can see the one discerning feature of him is that he has real heavy eyebrows. Okay. And why? Because he painted them on. So um, that becomes very important in the identification of David Ferry in Dealey Plaza, his real heavy eyebrows. Because when you look like that, you know, you're going to stand out like a sore thumb. Some people described him as looking like a sad clown, uh, which is really kind of unfortunate. <laughs> but um, this picture here was taken in 1954. This is at a Civil Air Patrol barbecue. Now, the Civil Air Patrol was like a way to bring teenagers into like, it's like an ROTC, right? But referencing like uh, air airplanes and stuff, right? So they would bring these kids in teach them the basics of military stuff, teach them how to like, uh, not really how to fly a plane. You couldn't get a pilot's license through there, but they would, you know, they would take them up in the airplanes, show them everything. And uh, that is where David Ferry initially interacted with Lee Harvey Oswald. It's Ferry on the left, Lee Harvey Oswald on the right. So David Ferry eventually gets kicked out of the Civil Air Patrol, probably, I believe, somewhere around 1959. Um, and what does he do from there? He starts his own version of the CAP using forged CAP, Civil Air Patrol uh, charter, right? So he creates his own branch of the Civil Air Patrol using forged documents. Uh, and it was called like the Fighting Falcon Squad or something along those lines. Uh, Ferry was, uh, Oswald was not involved with Ferry at that time. And as far as we know, this is the only interaction that we have between uh, David Ferry and Lee Harvey Oswald that we can actually prove. So uh, David Ferry was in Dallas. He was one of the shooters on the grassy knoll. And I went over this briefly, uh, I think uh, one of the last couple of times I was on the show, but I want to go a little bit more in depth into um, his role in the assassination. So let me stop screen sharing that. Um, I'm going to play a, a quick film here. So David Ferry... David Ferry was he fired the first shot from the corner of the picket fence. Uh, this is observed by a guy named Ed Hoffman, who I'm going to play his uh, statement now. This appeared on the uh, this appeared on the show the the Men Who Killed Kennedy. It was a BBC show, came out in the early 2000s. And uh, listen carefully to what uh, Mr. Ed Hoffman has to say. However, his story is confirmed by another eyewitness. Ed Hoffman, a deaf mute who is interviewed here for the first time. I'd gotten off work early because I had a dentist appointment. I was traveling down the freeway here and I remembered that President Kennedy was coming to visit Dallas. I parked my car here. I realized at this spot that I would be able to see Kennedy pass close by. I stood here and waited and I was looking towards where he would be coming from. I suddenly saw two men who looked suspicious directly over there in the car park. 25 years ago, these trees did not obscure the view. From his position at the side of the freeway, Ed Hoffman could clearly see the car park area behind the grassy knoll. I saw a man standing here, wearing a black hat and a blue jacket. I saw a puff of smoke and I thought it was a cigarette, but it wasn't. He had a gun and he walked towards the railroad. He tossed the gun to the second man 
Then he turned and straightened his jacket, adjusted his hat, and walked casually away. The man with the striped shirt, the railroad shirt, walked over to the electrical box with the gun. He took the gun apart. He put it in a toolbox. He then walked slowly away in the direction of the railroad track. When the motorcade passed by below me here, I realized that Kennedy had been shot. I was horrified. I saw a policeman standing on the railroad bridge and I tried to get his attention, but he didn't see me. So I got in my car and drove to the area where I had seen the two men. But there were so many people there, and I couldn't find them. I went to the FBI to tell them what I had seen. They didn't want me to say anything. They offered me money to keep quiet. They didn't understand that it was more important for me to tell them what I'd seen. It was hard for me to communicate with them. I do feel that the two men I saw were working together and that the one with the gun behind the fence was the man who shot President Kennedy. All right, so <clears throat> you have Ed Hoffman who gives a really good description. Well, he describes a man in a dark blue jacket and a black hat, okay? This becomes extremely important because we have a number of witnesses um, describing a, the very same man, not only in Dealey Plaza, but also at the Tippett shooting, which we discussed on the last episode that I was on. So let me go ahead. I'm going to show some more photos. So this picture here was actually cut from a film. And this over here on the right, I believe that's David Ferry. It completely matches the description as given by Ed Hoffman. And also from this, so Ferry basically fires from the corner of the picket fence. He then casually walks away, like Ed Hoffman said, and then he ends up on the pergola right there. And then he casually walks back into the railroad yards where a man matching the exact same description is captured on photograph here. So um, also in Dealey Plaza, he allegedly left New Orleans that day with two teenagers, Alvin Boboof and Melvin Coffey. Well, those guys, I found the photograph of them standing in Dealey Plaza, right? So he was most certainly in Dealey Plaza that day. Um, let me play one more video for you. Hello, friends. Have you heard of PEMF or Pulsed Electromagnetic Field Technology? I want to tell you a little bit about the Centropics Cloud. The Centropics Cloud is an at-home bioresonance frequency device. With the cloud, you can protect yourself and optimize your wellness anywhere you go. It supports molecular activation, energy, endurance, performance, rapid recovery, mental acuity, stress reduction, sleep management, deep relaxation, and much more. The cloud has the most effective frequency range of any at-home bioresonance frequency device. With the cloud, you'll experience up to 20,000 amplitudes per second through eight large coils and reach a wider molecular range in the body. 
Regenerate your batteries and keep your inner vital forces at full speed with the Centropics Cloud. Just visit GetTheFrequency.com or click the link in the description to take control of your health today. He stopped screen share. And for, so after he leaves from the pergola, it's amazing that we really have this incredible record. I think I might have played this video before, but it fits uh, the story. So I'm going to play it again. So from that time, from when he walks behind the walks behind the pergola and then through the railroad yards, from then he is witnessed again. Notice the descriptions that are given by this witness whose name is Velma. Let's go to our final caller with you, Alex. First time caller. Hi there. Hello. Yeah, go ahead, please. Uh, I am uh, Belma, and I live 100 miles from Dallas. I was living in Dallas at the time, and I had my car parked behind that Texas Depository book building. Yes, sir. I saw the shooter came out, and he had a very high-powered rifle. It was no bolt action, and... Uh, well, and, now, and let me ask you, please, because that rifle that they said Oswald used to kill Kennedy was apparently left upstairs. It so was. You're saying, you're saying you saw someone else come yes, out sir. with a high-powered rifle. Okay, tell me what happened then. Okay, I'm sitting in my car, and there's a gray, dove-colored, old, one-seated Plymouth car sitting there, and there's a man with a belt hat on with a wide band, and one -seated he had on Plymouth? a suit. A man and with a felt hat black and a suit. hair and real heavy eyebrows, and he'd look at me kind of dirty. Yeah, real heavy eyebrows. Well, about that time, a police car come and told this man to move, and he he didn't move right away. And the police got out of his car, and I know later it was tipping. And he told him, he said, I said move that car. Well, then this man that's in this old gray car, he went straight on around and went, around this big building that was across the street from me. Tippett went the other way, so they must have met back there. Did you say this to the Warren Commission, ma'am, or anybody else? I haven't told anybody because uh, I didn't want, I had four children I was having support then, and I didn't want to get shot. And I saw the man, and uh, I could tell you how he's All right, so that clip is from uh, Coast to Coast, Coast to Coast AM, uh, November 22nd, 2006. That person, Velma, called into that to the radio show on Coast to Coast AM and gave that little bit of testimony. So that is the only statement she's ever made. No one's ever contacted or identified her. I think I might know who she really is. Her name is Velma. And one of David Ferry's closest associates was a guy named Bill Dalzell, uh, who was uh, partnered up with um, Guy Bannister at, at 544 Camp Street. but. Um, Bill Dalzell's wife was named Velma at the time. So is there a connection there? I have no idea. But why would a woman just be sitting in a car randomly behind the book depository uh, while the president's uh, driving by 20 feet away? Like just sitting in her car? Really? That doesn't make any sense. So I think it's a possibility it might have been Bill Dalzell's wife, but I can't put Bill Dalzell in, uh, in Dallas at the time. So um, from there... 
uh, he leaves in the Gray Plymouth. And the Gray Plymouth is paramount because the Gray Plymouth and a man in a dark blue suit are then seen again involved in the tippet shooting, right? So that's the series of events that, that really took me like five witnesses and pulling pieces of their statement and finding the overlap, right? So the connection between Ed Hoffman and Velma was the uh, black hat and the dark blue jacket. She then sees a guy inside the vehicle who's got the black felt hat with a wide band and he's wearing a, uh, a dark suit, okay? So, and he's in the gray Plymouth. Okay, so we have the overlap from Ed, the statement of Ed Hoffman and the statement of Velma and the description of the individual. Then when we get to the tip of shooting, we have a very similar description of the individual in a dark blue suit driving a gray Plymouth. You know, it's this isn't rocket science. It just takes a long time to kind of chip away at all the garbage till you can see what's really going on. And so David Ferry fires the first shot. He then is seen by Ed Hoffman. He then walks through to the pergola, then cuts back through the railroad yards. And he ends up in the Great Plymouth where he's seen by Velma. And then he makes his way to the tippet shooting. So um, after the tippet shooting, and this is where things get really interesting. Um, after the tippet shooting, what you have is allegedly his alibi was that he was in New Orleans because allegedly he was at the trial of Carlos Marcello. Carlos Marcello was on trial for whatever. And you know how these guys operate. They're always found not guilty because they bribe the fucking jurors or whatever they got to do. But Carlos Marcello and everybody on Carlos Marcello's team says that they saw David Ferry in court. Well, guess what? They lied. Alice Guidros, who is G. Ray Gill's secretary. G. Ray Gill is Carlos Marcello's lawyer. Um, she says that Ferry stopped at the office exactly at 12 noon. What is she doing? She's establishing an alibi for him. The next two days of Ferry's life will be nothing more than establishing alibis because allegedly he's in New Orleans and he leaves at around six o'clock at night, um, picks up the, the two boys, Alvin Boboof and quote unquote uh, Melvin Coffey, who's just an alias for Leighton Martins, picks them up and then they head through a bunch of little cities. They stop in Vincent and Kenner and a bunch of places along the way. And then they end up in Houston at like four o'clock in the morning. Uh, so that whole story is a bunch of fiction, okay? David Ferry was in Dallas. He was one of the shooters on the Knoll, the second Tippet shooter. And then when he flees from uh, Dallas, he had flown in in a plane, right? And he left driving a light blue colored Ford Falcon. And the, st the story is that he went to the ice skating rink and met with uh, Chuck Rowland and a whole bunch of people. And so I'm going to explain now that story and how it's completely bunk and who was really in charge of the Winterland. Man, I want to get your thoughts on this real quick. Uh, it seemed back in that time period that the mob was a big deal, and you'd always hear things about, you know, uh, mob bosses being arrested, the mob did this, uh, you know, awful mob crimes. And it seems like today you don't hear that anymore. Um, they probably uh, seemingly have been integrated into more legitimized things to yeah. where the crime isn't as noticeable anymore. What do you think about that? So... The big change in the mob that occurred in the late 70s occurred after Meyer Lansky was basically on the run. So Meyer Lansky was the boss of all bosses of all time. He ran the mob from 1931 all the way till um, the late 1970s. After that, that was when Jews controlled the mob. That's a reality. I've, got, I've talked about this a lot. I don't want to go into the full backstory, but Sicilians were front bosses. The real bosses, like in Chicago, was Hyman Larner. He was Giancana's boss. And he dealt directly with Meyer Lansky, right? Traficante actually was close friends with Meyer Lansky. So uh, Traficante, who's not a Jew, 
he answered directly to Meyer Lansky just because they had a close personal relationship. And so there was no need for an intermediary there. But there were about a dozen Jewish mobsters who controlled the Sicilian bosses, all of them. Like there was no exception, really. And so Meyer Lansky, once he went on the run, the, the Jewish aspect of the mob had been building legitimate businesses for a decade. And so by the time Lansky went on the run, all the Jews had gone legit. And so all of the mob stuff fell back to the Sicilians. This didn't happen till like 78, 79. So then when you hear about like New York with John Gotti and all that stuff um, and uh, Sammy the Bull, like all that stuff really was in the 1980s and afterwards. That's when the control of the mob fell back to the five families in New York. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how that went. Um, so in this, what I'm going to show you now. I've never shown anybody in a on any video and no one's ever seen this before. What you're going to see is some extremely rare stuff. And I'm the only Kennedy investigator who's ever gotten their hands on these pictures that I'm going to show you. OK, so this is like a, a original patch from the Winterland Ice Arena, Houston, Texas. And this puts an end to the debate over the name because people call it the Winterland Ice Rink and all kinds of stuff. This kind of shows, this is what it was really called, the Winterland Ice Arena. All these photos I got, I got from a Facebook group that started in 2018. And if it wasn't for this Facebook group called Winterland Memories, I would never have been able to crack any of this stuff. It was so important for me getting into this Facebook group because some of the information that we're going to see here is just fucking unbelievable. And no other Kennedy researcher has ever even seen this before. Yeah, man. I love that, that you go to the most obscure links to get information mm -hmm. from like weird Facebook groups about Winterland Ice Arena to yeah. old newspaper articles, uh, uh, declassified information. Most people are just looking at this declassified stuff that came out and they're like, ah, right. this is it. This is the answer. But you're like going way beyond that shit. Yeah. So basically, here's the thing. Like you could give me any uh, document from any any case, like Kennedy, Martin Luther King, whatever, from that era. And I could take any single document and end up coming up with a, you know, a whole report just on what's inside each individual document. Because what I do is I go and I pull names and I look for um, known connections, right? You can, which Google is pretty good because Google doesn't realize what they should be censoring, censoring historically. And so you can find relationships really easily. Obituaries, obituaries tend to tell the truth. And I have a couple examples that we'll go over, <laughs> which told too much truth uh, and basically helped solve the assassination for me. Um, so when, a, when you're a CIA spy and you live a fake life and you have a real life, when you die, you're not there to write your obituary. So it's written by family and they write the story that they know without knowing your spy life. Right. So it's really it's amazing how, what, what you can get from obituaries and then genealogies and uh, old newspapers. Right. I learned everything I know about uh, Jack Ruby's brother, Samuel, uh, from reading old newspapers of, of times he was arrested and stuff. I mean, really cool stuff. So this is like a, um, a little brochure. Um, and the great thing about this is it has all these people's names in it, right? I'll show you. I have a bunch of rosters of hockey teams and stuff. On the right is Richard Rowland, who was the son of uh, Chuck Rowland. Uh, I'll get to him here momentarily. Uh, but yeah, I found all these fucking, all of these were posted in this Facebook group by people who actually skated at the Winterland. Okay. Um, so these are like, no one has ever seen these. These are like, these are gold. Like when I came across this stash, I 
fucking lost it. I probably spent a month just analyzing the names in all these pictures. So here, check this out. I got like um, Houston Figure Skating Club, a Spring Carnival 69, right? And I got all of these freaking names, right? Man, some of these names connect to intelligence. Some of these names connect to intelligence. Um, These were just some random drawings that were done by students there. Um, So this is interesting. The guy who was the main trainer there at the time of the assassination and after for about a decade after is this guy on the left named Larry Rost. Uh, Larry Rost was um, a French Canadian um, figure skater. He was an Olympic gold medalist and he was an associate, believe it or not, of Clay Shaw um, along with there was another ice skating uh guy a uh, hockey i forgot i can't remember believe i can't forget i can't remember his name offhand but there was the the head of a, a hockey team in canada who was uh friends with larry ross and he was also found in clay shaw's uh phone book so you have some interesting connections to this larry ross guy he also had uh some friends uh in new orleans and that that are described as three gay boys that's the only description i have of them <laughs> and that they used to do drag at a local drag show called Follies in Houston, right? So we got three three gay kids coming over from New Orleans to hang out with Larry Ross and do um, to do these drag shows and stuff. Connection to our, you know, our bunch of guys in New Orleans. I don't know, but I don't doubt it either. So here they have some more stuff like hockey articles on hockey that was done there. Um, more names. Uh, these here we go. Costumes and choreography by Joyce Rowland. Right. So, yeah, this is this is like priceless, priceless. Um, here's some more stuff, some random photographs, more Houston figure skating club, more names to research. Um, Rulona Roland, uh, that's the sister of Chuck Roland or that's the daughter of Chuck Roland. Sorry. Um, here we go. More information on the hockey stuff. Um, here is a, uh, on the left is the talking about Mary Boots Roberts. We'll get to her momentarily. Uh, Lee College Social Club to have ice skating party, right? So this is just random stuff, but from a perspective of a historian, it's just like, I can't explain to you how significant this stuff really is. It puts in perspective the entire trip to the Winterland or alleged trip by David Ferry, which never actually happened. So, um, more rosters, more stuff like this. Uh, a, a postcard sent to from one of the members to another member. I mean, this is, doesn't get any more rare than this. Uh, pictures of people who were um, famous from there. And this one right here, this article right here is, is so fucking important. I can't even begin to explain. So uh, Baytown Youth signs a contract with Ice Capades. Now, this is this this when I got through this and came to understand what it really was, it blew my mind. So it's unusual for a person to be hired by the ice capades after only six weeks of ice skating experience, but it's doubly unusual when that person is a native of Baytown, where about the only ice is in the refrigerators. Okay, so this is um this basically this guy, Glenn Harper, who's 18 years old, whose father is a supervisor at Humble Oil, okay. So let me explain this. Humble Oil is Prescott Bush's company. George Bush worked for, for Humble Oil for many years. Jack Valente worked for Humble Oil. Uh, George DeMornshield worked for Humble Oil. Humble Oil is a big fucking deal back in the 1950s and 40s and, and during that era. So this kid who's a skater, an ice skater at uh, the Winterland, 
had only been ice skating for six weeks. Okay, six weeks. But then he gets hired by Ice Capades, which was the biggest ice traveling show in the country. And his father happens to work for Humble Oil. What is the implication here? The implication here is that guy couldn't fucking ice skate himself, period. He couldn't ice skate at all. He was just a fucking guy. But his dad worked for Humble Oil. And I promise you, this kid, Glenn Harper, was probably involved in intelligence some way. Because uh, when you look into like Ice Capades and, and Disney on Ice and all this stuff, what you'll find is that all of them have connections to the CIA. And my belief is that all of these uh, ice skating, traveling, touring productions, just like the carnival circuit, were all being used by the CIA to smuggle guns and to smuggle drugs. And so I thought when I read this article about how one of the ice skaters from the Winterland got picked up by ice capades after having only picked up a pair of ice skates six weeks prior. No, sorry. You got to be a pro to make it into ice capades. This guy got uh, got hired because of his connections through his father to Humble Oil for some nefarious purpose. So, allegedly, when Ferry gets to the Winterland, which is the day after the assassination, right? He drove in on the day of the assassination, but the next day he meets with Roland Chuck Roland. And now this is official documentation, and they're calling him Roland Charles Roland. But that's not his real name. His real name is Rulon Chuck Roland, okay? Why they would brush this over, I don't know. Um, the weird thing is about Chuck Roland is that when you, if you go to archive.org and search the name Chuck Roland, you'll find a 400 page CIA file on an alleged spy named Charles Chuck Roland, spelt the same way, R-O-L-L-A-N-D. What are the odds of that? What are the odds of that? Slim to none. So there's way more to Chuck Roland um, than we know. And the Winterland at the time was owned by, or was leased by a couple. We'll get to the owner here in a minute. It was leased by a couple named Mary Boots Roberts and Ronnie Roberts. Uh, but Roberts is an alias. Um, Ronnie's real last name was Robert's son. And I determined Roberts was a stage name. But the weird thing is, uh, when you look into her obituary, she actually uses Roberts, not Robert's son. So when you're a spy for the CIA, you know, who the hell knows what Man, your real fucking name is? It's crazy how much how many ties Hollywood and celebrities have with like intelligence and three letter yeah. agencies and shit. You got to remember uh, back to Goebbels' principles of propaganda. Um, all propaganda must be controlled by a central entity. That's the CIA. So any place that we're going to get propaganda, other than like advertising propaganda, um, is going to be have you're going to have to have the seal of approval from upstairs, right? From the Central Intelligence Agency. That's why Jack Valente ran Hollywood through the MPAA for 40 years at the behest of the CIA, right? Jack Valente controlled everything that went on in Hollywood. Every movie that got made, every piss, every penny that got spent on any kind of entertainment was controlled by Jack Valente. He worked for the CIA for 40 fucking years. Okay. So yeah, uh, the CIA is not going to allow dissident information. Um, they had the, information the gong show guy. They had that lady who was oh. a chef. What's her name? Uh, shit, I forget her oh, name. Oh, um, uh, Julia Childs. Yeah, and, uh, Julia Childs. Chuck Barris. Yeah, man. And, uh, you know, you go to modern age. Uh, what's the dude who played Batman? Affleck. Uh, oh, oh yeah. And then Marky Mark. Yeah. And they're, you know, all, of course, ties with Marky Hollywood. Mark is probably the biggest propagandist in fucking Hollywood. That guy is like, <laughs> Everything he does is like pro-America. Fuck yeah. You know, it's like whatever, dude. Like in president of Ukraine? <laughs> Jesus. Oh, I know. Oh, dude. Yeah. I like when he plays the piano with his dick. That was that was kind of funny. <laughs> so, okay. So Mary Boots Roberts, uh, fascinating individual. Mary Boots Roberts, white, 
I don't know where she got the white from. I can't find her being married to anybody named White. So Mary Boots Roberts White passed away on Saturday, the 29th of November, beloved mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother and friend. She accomplished much in her life, became a professional ice skater, and worked for NASA during the Apollo and Gemini missions, okay? So we got this lady who's working, who's running the Winterland, who then goes to work for NASA. But you know what? I dug through the Apollo and Gemini um, mission information. Her name doesn't appear anywhere. Any It doesn't appear at all. It's just not even there. Because... NASA was an intelligence front for the CIA and they would put people on payroll so they could go out and do spy stuff. That's kind of how that worked. Um, Oswald had four uh, fellow employees of Riley Coffee Company who all went to go work for NASA uh, or Mashad or, or, or Boeing um, from working at Riley Coffee. So yeah, these the, the aerospace was a good cover for CIA spy stuff. Faker than space, this- man. Faker than space. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this is where it starts to get really good. She is preceded in death by her parents, Joe and Corrine Caltagarone, and her brother, Joe Caltagarone. Okay. So what we can derive from this is that her birth name is Caltagarone. Her parents are Joe and Corrine Caltagarone, and her brother is Joe Caltagarone. So she's obviously Mary Caltagarone at birth. She happened to have a cousin on her father's side. Her father was Joseph Sr. Joseph Sr.'s brother was Vincent Sr., and Vincent had a son named Vincent T. Caltagarone Jr., okay? So Vincent T. Caltagarone Jr. is Mary Boots Roberts' first cousin on her father's side. Now, this is where it starts to get really good. When you dig through Vincent Caltagarone's obituary, what you'll see is that um, after graduating from St. Thomas High School in '43. Vincent attended Texas A&M University, followed by an enlistment in the U.S. Navy. Okay, so we've got naval intelligence. All right. Upon discharge, he received his bachelor's degree from the University of Houston, which is where Jack Valente went to school, followed by 35 years in the insurance business. Now, that statement is an outright lie. Uh, Vincent was a board member of the National YMCA scuba program. One of Vincent's recreational diversions was teaching scuba at the Houston downtown YMCA. That becomes key here momentarily. And Vincent was a member of St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church, as well as Sacred Heart Society of Little York. So on a lot of these spooks who are unconnected all over all over the place, I've found in obituaries that they were a member of St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church. So there's some weird shady shit going on with Vincent de Paul Catholic Church. Definitely. Um, Vincent is preceded in death by his father, Vincent T. Caltagrone Sr., and his mother, Carolyn Caltagrone. Vincent T. Caltagrone Sr. was the brother of Joseph Caltagrone, who was Mary Boots Roberts' father. (laughs) This is where it gets... There's some obfuscation here, because the next line says, he is survived by his wife of 50 years, Roberta Bobby Caltagrone. And then it mentions his sons are Tom Caltagrone and wife, Lou Caltagrone, and uh, their grandson, Jack Caltagrone, who was the son of Tom and Lou, okay? This is extremely fucking important because the mother of those children is not Roberta Bobby Caltagrone. That was his second wife. The children came from his first wife, okay? And his first wife was born Lorraine Valenti. And she later on in life went on to be Lorraine Valenti Dinerstein, but for a time, she was Lorraine Valenti Caltagarone, married to Vincent Caltagarone Jr. And the kicker here is her brother is Jack Valenti. Okay. So 
Uh, Lorraine was preceded in death by her loving husband, Ted Dinerstein, her brother, Jack Valenti, and his wife, Mary Margaret Valenti. So it's definitely Jack Valenti's sister and her parents. She is survived by her son, Tom Caltagarone, and his wife, Lou, and their son named Jack. All right. So go back to Vincent. His sons were Tom Caltagarone with a wife named Lou and their son, Jack. Okay. So this relationship, they went to great extent to hide the relationship between Vincent Caltagoron Jr. and Lorraine Valenti Dinerstein um, for obvious reasons, okay? Uh, it becomes really fucking important later on um, when Jack Valenti is in the White House and basically forced out of the White House in 1966. And I'll tell you, and I'll, I'll get to that here momentarily. So then when you look into the Jack Valenti file, you'll find this. Um, talks about his relatives, Joseph Valenti, age 67, uh, Josephine DeGeorge Valenti, mother, age 61. But for some reason, they redacted the name of his sister, who is Lorraine Valenti Dinerstein at the time, age 38, all of Houston. And in the column here, they have the name Vincent. I was like, whoa, that's crazy. To me, that was the ice, uh, ice, icing on the cake uh, connecting Mary Booth Roberts to Vincent Caltagirone Jr., to Lorraine Valenti, and ultimately Jack Valenti from there. And now let's take a look at see who owned the Winterland Ice Rink, okay? So this is from that group that I was in. Um, this was posted by Richard Rowland, who was the son of Roulon Rowland. And it says, this is my mom, Joyce Rowland. I saw some previous posts where there were questions about who owned the Winterland Ice Rink. Her recollection is that the Johnson family built a building at the rink, the Johnson family. Okay. They owned the multi-story building across the street that fronted Kirby and other real estate throughout Houston. Yes. The Johnson family enterprise who at the time of the assassination was owned by who? Lyndon Baines Johnson. And who is Lyndon Johnson's right-hand man? Jack Valente. So you have this incredible Fucking just unbelievable series of relationships between Mary Boots Roberts. So let me start at the beginning. You have Lyndon Johnson owns the Johnson Family Enterprise. Johnson Family Enterprise owned the Winterland. The Winterland was leased to Mary Caltagirone, a.k.a. Mary Boots Roberts. And then her cousin was Vincent Caltagirone Jr., who was married to Lorraine Valenti Dinerstein, who is the sister of Jack Valenti, who is the right-hand man of Lyndon Johnson, right? So you have this closed loop of interaction here between these four people, Lyndon Johnson, Jack Valenti, Mary Boots Roberts, and Vincent Caltagirone Jr. Uh, it's absolutely stunning. And then, let me see if, I don't know if I have, yeah, we'll go into it here coming up. Um, so it's extremely important. The relationship between Vincent Caltagirone and Jack Valenti will be extremely important. And I'll show you why. Okay, so um, this is from the FBI file on David Ferry, and it talks about his trip allegedly to uh, the Winterland, where he met with Chuck Rowland and all this stuff, but he never actually went there. And we'll get to that here coming up. So <clears throat> um, there was a local call made to uh, the number MO4-3581, and nowhere in any JFK researcher's files Will you find that number identified? Why? I don't know. It's 2022. It was easy for me to find that. I think I found it in like five fucking minutes. I went to newspapers.com, right? Where I can search old newspapers. And I put that phone number in quotes, MO space 4-3581. And guess what I found? I found that that phone number came back 
to the Gateway Swim and Skate. Now, um, when you, let me see if I can find it here. Um, I'm looking for one in particular. Uh, while he's looking for that, want to remind anyone in the audience, you have any questions or comments, anything at all, leave those in the chat and we will get right to them. Hmm. Stolen huh. documents. I can't seem to find it. I just saw it yesterday. So, but here, let, let, I'll explain. So David Ferry, basically, David Ferry, when he's interviewed about his trip, he gives all the wrong answers. Like, where did you stop? When did you stop? And he got the order of where they stopped allegedly all wrong compared to everyone else's testimony. And then when asked what he did in, in uh, Houston, he tells them that he had gone to the Bel Air skating rink. Okay. The Bel Air skating rink, extremely important. Um, he says he went to the Bel Air. He hung out for about an hour and uh, he couldn't find the owner to talk to him about anything. And so they then left. Well, in 1959, the Bel Air skating rink became the gateway swim and skate. Okay. So what is this? So much that can be gleaned from his statements, him, number one, giving the name of the Bel Air skating rink when he was actually at the gateway. Um, what that ind indicates is that David Ferry had been making runs for some nefarious purpose from New Orleans to Houston at the Bel Air skating rink. And that means that he'd been doing runs there since a minimum 1959, right? So he knew everybody involved in Houston. He knew all these people at the Winterland already. And how I know that, because the Gateway Swim and Skate, and when we look at Vincent Caltagrone's obituary again, it says that one of Vincent's, Vincent's recreational diversions was teaching scuba at the Houston downtown YMCA. Well, guess what? The downtown Houston YMCA is the Gateway Swim and Skate, which basically rebranded sometime in the 1970s. Okay. So Vincent called to Garone, the phone number that was called from the motel, right? So this phone number here, MO43581, it went back to the Gateway. And the phone call was made from the motel that allegedly David Ferry stayed at to the Gateway. Why? Because that must have been where Vincent Caltagarone was working prior to them rebranding it, the, the Houston downtown YMCA, right? So the next thing that's important, they stayed at the Alamo Motel, okay? This is, uh, this is a post that I found on like a Houston architecture fucking forum, like some obscure Houston architecture forum. And this was a killer, killer statement because I don't think most people realize this. Besides the fact that that phone number went unidentified, nobody knew it went to the gateway except for me. Um, this statement put everything in context. This is somebody that posted this in 2011. It said the gateway pool opened in 1959. That was right after it was the Bel Air. I was 10 at the time and they had this huge grand opening and my parents bought me a season pass. Our house backed up close to it. I would ride my bike through the vacant lot next to our house. And it was just on the other side of the Alamo motel. Okay. So the gateway was right next to the Alamo where, where these guys allegedly stayed. Right. So they go to Houston. They have this weird appearance of supposedly David Ferry at the Winterland where they talk to Chuck Rowland. They, and remember, Mary Boots Roberts is the Lisi, and it's Vincent Caltagrone is her cousin, right? So they go there. 
They then from there, they stay at the Alamo Motel, which is right next to the gateway. And then from the gateway, they're and then from the Alamo, they're calling the gateway, right? So what's the common thread among all these places that they're visiting? Vincent called to Garone Jr., okay? Now, why on earth would they be going to so much trouble to try to get a hold or contact Vincent called to Garone Jr.? And the answer to that is because Vincent called to Garone Jr. was in fact a short tramp in Dealey Plaza. And we know this is the fact, we know this is the case because James Earl Ray identified the short tramp as Raul, okay? The Raul who set up Martin Luther King. And through completely unrelated means, I was able to identify Vincent Caltagoron Jr. as the real Raul. And so the real kicker to this whole thing is when you look at a picture of Joyce Rowland on the left and Mary Boots Roberts on the right, that is the same fucking person. That is the same person. So allegedly sometime in the late 1950s, early 1960s, the uh, Mary Boots Roberts and Ronnie Roberts gave up uh, running the Winterland and turned it over to Joyce Rowland. But that's the same person. The hair is identical. The picture on the left looks a little older, perhaps. Who knows? Um, look at that like double freaking uh, turkey neck that she's got. It's the same. It's identical. It's the same fucking thing, right? So like... This is the same fucking person. So the whole story about um, Joyce Rowland and Chuck Rowland and all that, I don't know what the fuck's going on there, but this is the same person. At some point in time, when you leave the CIA, you have to like, I guess you need to like kill off your alias, right? You, something's got to, they got to come up with some way to do it. But yeah, that's the same. That is the same person for sure. Now, um, David Ferry never went to the Winterland. And so we're going to talk about what Ferry actually did. So Ferry was obviously in Dallas, okay? He had flown in in his plane, and then actually on the day of the assassination, a Dallas police officer by the name of Joe Cody, who was a very close associate of Jack Ruby, and also allegedly the man who purchased the gun that Ruby shot Oswald with, right? So allegedly, uh, Joe Cody buys the gun um, that Oswald is killed with, and he gifts it to Jack Ruby, and then Jack Ruby uses it to shoot Oswald. So there's a very close relationship between Jack Ruby and Joe Cody. So Joe Cody, on the day of the assassination, he's in Shreveport, Louisiana, for some reason, right? Um, he gets involved in a uh, a plane crash on the ground, right? So I guess he lands the plane, and then he bumps into another plane while they're both on the ground. Nobody's hurt. Planes aren't damaged. But it was enough to get a report filed, okay? When he gets back to Dallas, he wrote this, like, over-the-top story on why he went to New Orleans, Right. So whenever someone's guilty, they'll tell you way too much information. Seriously, when someone's honest, they're like, I didn't fucking do it. Fuck off. And when you're guilty and lying about it, you're going to come up with an elaborate story, which is exactly what he did. He came up with this like four fucking page report on why he had to fly a plane to uh, New Orleans to Shreveport that day. So basically, the point I'm making is that David Ferry flies into Dallas or Fort Worth two days before the assassination. And that's testified to by Jack Martin. We know he was there because of the statements made by Jack Martin. And so, but then he doesn't fly his plane out. He ends up leaving in a light blue uh, Ford Falcon station wagon. So now the reason that we know that he never went to the uh, Winterland ice rink and that the person who actually went to the Winterland who said that they were David Ferry was actually a guy named Sergio Arcacha Smith, who was probably one of Ferry's closest associates in New Orleans in regards to the assassination. He was also the shooter on the roof of the book depository. Um, so we have this statement here. Uh, allegedly the night of the assassination, remember he's driving to, uh, Houston from new Orleans and he gets in about four o'clock in the morning, 
But then we have this statement. It says, uh, check Daily Star, Hammond, Louisiana. This is from the Garrison Files. Supposedly a graduate student, presumed Southeastern, says Ferry hid out the night of the assassination in a dorm room in Hammond. There is an airport in Hammond, also the home of Shaw's mother. Athletic director Grady Martin might have some information. Well, guess what? There's no information on Grady Martin. I probably spent a couple days or a week looking for anything I could find on Grady Martin. Doesn't exist. Anything that he might have given to the cops back then has been disappeared from history. So the night of the assassination, he doesn't. he's not in Houston. What he does is he actually leaves from Dallas in a light blue Ford Falcon, and he drives to Hammond, Louisiana where he stays with a guy named Thomas Compton at Southeastern University in Hammond. That's what Ferry does. Um, now, we have the statement from Thomas Compton, who lies about the whole thing. He was in on this, or at least he was in on giving Ferry a cover after the assassination, right? Establishing alibis is everything, okay? So uh, Mr. Compton continued to state that on Sunday after the assassination at 5.30 a.m., he was awakened by Dave Ferry in his dormitory bed at the University of Southeastern in Hammond, Louisiana. Mr. Compton stated that until this day, he is uncertain how Dave Ferry located him on this date. At this time, Dave Ferry was in hysterics and near tears as he stated, the police are at my home and they've taken some of my things. Compton stated that Dave Ferry did not elaborate on my things and stated that Ferry also related that he didn't do anything wrong. The two talked for a while on different unrelated subjects, and then Ferry made two calls to New Orleans, and Compton believed they were to G. Ray Gill. And uh, Compton stated that Dave Ferry left approximately 8.30 a.m. the same morning, and it is believed he returned to New Orleans in a Ford Falcon station wagon painted light blue. Compton stated Dave Ferry did not tell him he had been to Texas. Okay? <laughs> Total fiction. And this is where Thomas Compton screwed up. Thomas Compton says that Dave Ferry shows up at his place at 5.30 in the morning on Sunday after the assassination and says, the police are at my home and they've taken my things. Well, guess what? That's complete BS because that didn't happen till Monday. That didn't happen till 20 hours later. It was not Sunday. It was Monday, just past midnight that the cops show up. So how uh, David Ferry could make this statement or how Compton could make this statement to the FBI or Dallas police or whomever stating that Ferry showed up 5.30 in the morning, freaking out about his things. It, it's it's complete BS because that incident where the cops show up at Ferry's home didn't happen for another 20 hours. So Compton's definitely lying. And we also know that Compton is lying because of Compton's roommate, a guy named Frank J. Chalona. Now, this is some of the best, this is probably top five statement in all Kennedy assassination research. It's, it's got to be one of my favorites. Um he just completely debunks the entire statement by Chelona, and he he basically debunks the entire Winterland story as well. So in the fall of 1963, my roommate was Thomas Compton. We were residing in Holloway Smith Hall, Southeastern University College. I think that on approximately November 22nd or 23rd, he told me that a friend of his would be staying in our room. Okay, so there's advanced knowledge, right? He told me that a friend would be staying in our room. So Compton knew in advance that uh, David Ferry was showing up there. And that's in contradiction to Compton's statement where he says that Ferry just showed up at his room, right? So we got that lie busted right there. The reason for this person staying was said to be so that he could be where many people could see him, okay? So he's there to establish an alibi, but I don't know what the hell went on with this. Why would they do this to establish an alibi and go to the Winterland? It doesn't make any sense. It could just be to confuse everybody. I was told his name was Dave. I don't remember for certain whether I was even told his last name. I was told he was a psychologist. Now, when you go into um, the phone book 
uh, for New Orleans that year, you'll find David Ferry is listed as a psychologist in the phone book. Weird, huh? So um, it's definitely the same day we're talking about. And this kind of locks that in. On the 23rd of November in the afternoon or perhaps the evening, <coughs> I went to my room and found the man sleeping in my roommate's bed. Okay. What happened on the 23rd? David Ferry was supposed to be in Houston at the ice rink sometime between 3 and 5 p.m. All right. But he can't be there if he's sleeping in Thomas Compton's bed. Uh, you know, how far is Hammond from Houston? Got to be three, three, four, five hours, something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So on the 23rd of November in the afternoon or perhaps the evening, I went to my room and found this man sleeping in my roommate's bed. His back was to me, so I couldn't see his face at the time. I noticed, however, that he was sleeping fully clothed and with his hat on. At this time, I also noticed that his hair was very strange looking. I believe that I was introduced to him later on in the evening, but I don't remember the nature of the introduction or what was said, except that not much was said at all. I asked my roommate about this man and in particular about his hair. I was told that he was bald and that he pasted theatrical hair at the point where his hat met his head. I am not certain that he spent the entire night in the room or that he even spent more than a few hours in the early evening. The next time I saw him was Sunday morning in the lobby of the dormitory. It was very crowded as everyone was watching the funeral on television. I believe I saw him. I don't believe I saw him anymore after Sunday morning. Later that day, my roommate told me that Dave had gone back home. I don't know how he got home. Perhaps my roommate drove him. Well, that's a mistake. Um, the assassination, I'm sorry, the funeral was actually on Monday, the 25th. And the official story has um, David Ferry staying in Hammond that Sunday night and leaving Monday morning. So yeah, so basically David Ferry was there all uh, all weekend, except for with one exception. So this is the actual Ferry timeline. Um, Ferry was in Fort Worth on 1120 as per Jack Martin. And then Ferry was in Dallas on November 22nd, where he was a shooter, a shooter on the grassy knoll and a shooter of Tippett. Uh, Ferry hit out in Hammond the night of November 22nd, 63, as per the Garrison memo. Uh, Chelona sees Ferry sleeping on Saturday, 11 23 63, in the afternoon or evening in Hammond. And this confirms that Ferry never went to Houston, period. Uh, it was all about establishing an alibi. Uh, then, after he gets up on the 23rd, that's Saturday night, after the day they were supposed to be at the uh, Winterland, David Ferry drives from Hammond, Louisiana, down to Galveston. And he does that so he can check into the Driftwood Motel. Uh, we have his uh, registration and his license plates on the check-in. So we know that he was there, right? So he was seen by Frank Shalona in the afternoon or evening five twenty-three on 11-23, the day after the assassination when he's supposed to be in Houston. Then he drives down to the Driftwood Motel, checks in, registers the car on the room. And then the, the timing of Compton's statement putting him back in on Sunday at 5.30, that completely coincides with David Ferry leaving from Galveston after he checks into the hotel, and he checks into the hotel for Sergio Arcacha-Smith, Alvin Bobuf, and Leighton Martins. He then drives back to Hammond, Louisiana, where he then is seen by uh, Thomas Compton, okay? But Compton lied. He was in on this whole cover-up. So, And then Chelona puts Ferry in Hammond, on the 25th in the morning during Kennedy's funeral, and then ferries in New Orleans and meets with Garrison on the 25th, right? So Garrison has no idea how close he came to the to solving the assassination. He had David Ferry in his office, like we saw in that scene, um, just a couple days after the assassination, okay? So yeah, Garrison came so much closer than he ever realized. And then we have... Um, let me see. 
Yeah, this is uh, showing that shortly after midnight, these officers went to 3330 Louisiana Parkway, knocked on the door, and the same was opened by a subject who identified himself as Alvin Boboof. Okay, so the officers requested the present whereabouts of David Ferry, blah, blah, blah. Basically, this is them showing up at David Ferry's house or his apartment Monday, just after midnight, right? So it was 20 hours after Compton said that he was complaining about his things being taken. No, the cops didn't show up until Monday. So Compton was a liar. Uh, he was placed under arrest, and this is talking about Leighton Martins and Alvin Boboof, because they got arrested also. He was placed under arrest, and the officers went up to the second-story apartment where they found Leighton Martins seated in a chair. The subject was questioned, and he stated that he was presently living with Ferry. However, he did not know the present whereabouts of Ferry. Um, that's because Ferry, at this time, is still in Hammond. Uh, however, he did not know the present whereabouts of Ferry. Martins was placed under arrest, and the officers instituted a search. In this residence was found a Smith & Wesson 38 caliber with a five-inch barrel, six-shot revolver, and it's got all the information there. So, and I think this is the last slide I have, uh, and that one's that's at. So, basically, David Ferry shoots the president. He gets in the Gray Plymouth. He then drives over to the Tippett shooting. He's one of the two shooters of Tippett along with Kerry Thornley. He then flees to an address, um, 5818 Belmont, which is in northern Dallas, which is the, the police show up there. Uh, because they get a call that a guy got out of the vehicle with a rifle. Now, that's a different person. That's David Wayne House. David Wayne House was actually arrested. But we know that David Ferry at some point makes it to this house because the cops give a description of a light-colored Ford Falcon station wagon in the driveway when they respond to this house. So at some point, David Ferry makes his way to the 5818 Belmont address, gets the Ford Falcon, drives to Hammond, Louisiana, where he shows up sometime in the middle of the night, however long the drive from Dallas to Hammond is. And that's what David Ferry did. So he eventually, um, once the investigation kicks off, he dies. Okay. So the weird thing is his death is ruled by the coroner's natural causes, but he left two suicide notes. Yeah, really strange. Okay. Um, the interesting thing about Ferry's death is he blackmailed Carlos Marcello after the assassination. Okay. So uh, if there's one way to guarantee your death, it's to blackmail Carlos Marcello. All right. So what he does is he writes to, he um, writes a letter. Uh, people wrote letters back then. It's quite odd, but he writes a letter to Carlos Marcello, basically saying, I did so much for you. I did this. I did this. I did all kinds of stuff. And you fucking screwed me, man. I got nothing. I live like a bum. I, I, I need $50,000 or else, you know, people might learn things is basically what he writes in a letter to Carlos Marcello. What are you stupid? You don't do that. Okay. Um, after that, Carlos Marcello gives him $50,000 and he takes that $50,000 and he opens a gas station of all things. He opens a gas station and his partner is Alvin Boboof. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I think the gas station had actually, it only lasted like a, not even a year before it folded. Um, but my money is on Marcelo killed him. <laughs> okay. You just don't blackmail a guy and think he's going to forget about it. Right. So yeah, David Ferry, um, very key person in the assassination. He was connected to basically all the guys in the, all the shooters he knew because he was a mob guy through Carlos Marcelo and Marcelo would send him to go fly runs, to go meet with people and as a messenger and a courier. And so throughout his, uh, working with Marcelo, which lasted for two or three years, um, he basically got introduced to all kinds of people. You've got Frank the Frank the Irishman Sheeran, who basically in his book, uh, I Heard You Paint Houses, he basically says he knew Ferry and he had met with Ferry a couple of times. 
and that he actually delivered three rifles to Ferry in a duffel bag um, about a month before the assassination or a couple months before the assassination, right? So David Ferry was new. All these fucking mob guys, um, it's wild. So yeah, he was far more important person in the assassination than anyone gives him credit for. If you really don't think that he was in Dallas, then he absolutely... If he wasn't, if he was involved in the assassination, he was in Dallas. Like the two are inseparable. If you don't think he was in Dallas, then he couldn't have had any part in the assassination. Really. It just happened to be all of his guys that he knew in the book depository and on the knoll and everywhere else. Um, at some level, at some point, he had to have been connected to Jack Valenti through Jack Ruby. Because Jack Ruby and Jack Valenti, they knew each other growing up. They were running pornography between New Orleans and Houston on behalf of Carlos Marcello. Uh, I mean, those guys had to have known David Ferry at the time also. And so Jack Valente must have known him pro probably under an alias. But so, yes, that's what basically what I wanted to go over today and show how important David Ferry was. And uh, that is that. I love it, man. Uh, way to dig deep. Uh, thank you, Joshua. That's what he says. And that's what I say as well. Any word has a question here. Why did they even take Oswald into custody? It seems it would be just easier to kill him before. Right. He was supposed to die in the Texas theater. Plain and simple. Um, uh, the gun, he didn't have the gun. Okay. Oswald never owned any gun. When you look into the stories of how he got the rifle allegedly and how the, he got their handgun, it doesn't make any sense. And then it turns out the, the the handgun that he allegedly had on him had a modified barrel. Um, the gun that I just mentioned that they took from Ferry's house in New Orleans, that had a modified barrel also. So could it have been the same gun? Who knows? No idea. Um, but uh, yeah, so he was supposed to die in the Texas theater. And how do I know that? Because in one of the photographs of the Texas theater outside you've got one of the costume people wearing the robes. So, you know, that that tells me everything. That tells me that he was supposed to die there and it just didn't happen for some reason. Um, yeah, and so let me explain what happens next. So after he gets arrested and didn't die, Jack Ruby makes a call to Los Angeles. He calls a guy named Al Gruber. Al Gruber was the right-hand man of Mickey Cohen. Al Gruber had also met with Menish and Began, and Yitzhak Shamir in Los Angeles three weeks before the assassination and then drove to Dallas to meet with Jack Ruby. Immediately after Oswald's arrested, Jack Ruby picks up the phone, calls Al Gruber. It is at that moment that Al Gruber gave Jack Ruby the order to kill Oswald because it was supposed to happen in the theater and everybody would have been cool. The cops killed him. Nobody's going to ask any questions. Would have wrapped the whole thing up nice and neat. But since that didn't happen, sending Jack in on the 24th was like an audible. They, it wasn't planned or anything. Like, I mean, the, the the 24th, the coordination between moving Oswald and him getting shot, totally coordinated by a guy named uh, Gerald Butler. Um, and uh, Or George Butler, I'm sorry. George Butler was Jack Ruby's oldest friend in Dallas. And he was the head of the police union at the time, but he was a Dallas cop for 20, 30 years. Uh, definitely on the take through Chicago mob. So yeah, George Butler ends up letting Jack Ruby into the um, into the basement to shoot oswald and you know it was samuel ruby jack ruby's brother who went and bought the money orders right so it was that's how that got pulled off but yeah um crazy stuff david ferry super important guy uh overlooked by the majority of american history and that guy man people never understand how important he actually is hopefully uh, hopefully they will when they read my book yeah man i love it uh so you're thinking somewhere around october right yes i'll be done i'll be done I'll be done with the actual writing in the next month or so. 
And then, then I'll have to like do the, you know, the formatting and the, the editing and uh, the, the thing I'm dreading the most about that set, that part is the, um, my references. Cause I literally have hundreds and hundreds of references. And right now I just have brief notes. I have them stuck in a sentence. Like this is where this reference is. So I'm going to have to go back and re-research all of my references just to be able to write up my reference page. So that's the part I'm really dreading. Everything else should go fairly quickly, but yeah, it'll definitely be out in the next month or two. So, and uh, everyone check out his website, coreyhughes.org. Also, if you want to help us in any way with donations for the docuseries or to help finish this book, please go to supportfkn.com and you will get tons of awesome information as well from that. Corey, this was great, and we'll uh, we'll be talking again soon before the book comes yep. out to give another uh, little preview of it. Absolutely. Thank you. Awesome. Until next time, everyone, have an excellent evening. We'll talk again tomorrow. See y'all then. Do you want to learn how to remote view? Now is your chance. The International Remote Viewing Association is offering eight weeks of remote viewing classes instructed by my friend Michelle Freed. Don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity starting Saturday, September 3rd, 10 a.m. Pacific. The course is only $150, and for members of the IRVA, it's only $110. Just visit irva.org slash events slash registration to sign up now.